Welcome to Finding Faith, the space we come to share stories of encounter, ask questions, and share in the lived experience of others. My name is Jesse Bennett, and this is the first episode of Finding Faith. We all love a good story, don't we? It's why the entertainment industry spends billions of dollars every year creating movies, television shows, sitcoms, comedies, etc. for our consumption. It's why we have so many streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Disney+. It's why people like me will tune in week after week to see the next episode of NCIS or Blue Bloods, Law & Order or The Code. It's why Marvel has been able to create an entire universe complete with 23 movies and counting, or why Star Wars has been able to create so many spin-offs of shows from the original movies. We love stories. And that's what this is all about. Stories. It's easy to get lost in the doctrines and teachings of the church when you talk about faith. I do believe it is important to learn about the church and her teachings. But I think we must begin by telling stories and engaging, not the head, but the heart, because everyone has a story to tell. Each episode of this podcast carries with it the privilege of hearing the stories of people from this community. Guests will share their experience of walking, crawling, running away from God and faith. In this episode, we will begin by sharing the story of Jesus. No matter where you are in your faith journey, I encourage you to begin here and listen closely to what I am about to share. You may be skeptical or unsure of the message you hear, but that's okay. From beginning to end in the scriptures, most especially in the Gospels, there is a priority of asking questions and experiencing doubt. Asking and seeking are a way to come to know who God is and why he matters. Questions and hard conversations are not the enemy of faith, but rather a path to encountering Jesus one that he regularly encouraged. We start with the idea that God is love. Not that God loves, though he does, but that he is love. He is the very definition of love. We hear this message echoed over and over in our world. It's on billboards, church signs, social media posts by churches, and the people who fill their pews. God is love. There's a chance that we've heard this message so many times that we aren't sure if it's something that's even true. We're not sure if it's something we believe, or just something people say but never really allow the message to touch their heart. Have you ever stopped to ask, what does this really mean to me? In the book of Genesis we hear, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty sweeping wind over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. He saw that the light was good. Evening came and morning followed, the first day. We hear this sentiment echoed again in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him, nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning we hear that God created, and he saw that what he created was good. 
But what about why he created? Have you ever stopped to think about those motives? Before the universe existed, God was. And from nothing, God speaks a word, and that word brings into existence everything. We see the sun and the moon, waters teeming with life, hills and valleys crawling with all forms of creatures, and the most exotic and beautiful plants and flowers, and finally, mankind, created in the image of God himself. So what could possibly motivate a perfect being who lacks for nothing to create all other things? You see, this question is at the heart of our story. He wasn't bored or lonely, so he didn't create humanity to entertain or to worship him. God was so filled with love that his love overflowed, and from that abundance of love, we were created. You see, even humanity can understand that if we truly love, it cannot be contained because love must be given away. We were created with a purpose, and our purpose is to receive love and to give love in return. We read in Genesis that humanity was created in the image and likeness of God. So let's look at who God is. God is three persons in one. So you have the Father who loves the Son, the Son who loves the Father, and the love between them is so great that from their love proceeds the Holy Spirit, who loves the Father and the Son. Therefore, the Trinity is a communion of love. If we then were created in the image of the Trinity, who is a communion of love, we are also created to be a communion of love. We were created to be in communion with others, created for community. We all have within us a deep desire to love others and to be loved in return. This is not by chance or by mistake. This is why we were created. Out of an abundance of love, humanity was formed to love and to be loved in return. But like every great story, something goes wrong and a conflict arises. Humanity broke the once loving communion they shared with their creator. Where God and humanity were partners, the fall of man in the form of sin changes the shape of that relationship, and man no longer saw God as partner, but as master. No longer his friend, but his slave. The enemy struck at the heart of Eve's relationship with God and caused her to doubt the love he had for her, and to view her once loving relationship with the Father with fear. When given the choice to choose between themselves or God, Adam and Eve chose themselves. They rejected their status as limited creature, rejected their humanity, and instead aspired to be godlike. The real tragedy is that Adam and Eve exchanged the truth for a lie. Desiring freedom, they fell into bondage and took all of creation with them. At this point in the story, some may say, why didn't God stop them? If he really is all-powerful, couldn't he have fixed this? And the answer is yes, he could have stopped them, and yes, he could have fixed everything. He could have simply called a do-over, but he didn't. He didn't because he loved Adam and Eve too much. You see, God is love, and he created us out of love, and when he created humanity, he gave us free will. That means that he gave us not only the freedom to choose to love him, but also the freedom to choose to reject him. Because love is not really love if it is forced or coerced. If we truly believe that God is love and that he has given us a free will, what would that say about him if he started over every time humanity rejected him or if he fixed our mistakes every time we made them? 
God loves humanity too much to override our free choice, including the free choice of Adam and Eve to reject truth, no matter how painful the consequences. If he simply declared a do-over every time, his will would essentially take away the consequences of our free choices, rendering our will not free. To take away our free will would be to take away our humanity, our freedom to love. Without free will, we would simply be puppets on a divine stage. Adam and Eve changed the course of our relationship, not only with God, but also with each other. Shame, suspicion, lust, temptation, and manipulation now entered human relationships. And God saw all of this. While he could not shield us from the consequences of our actions, he loved us so much that he didn't allow our story to end there. He desires to be in relationship with us, and since our sin broke that relationship, God formulated a plan to save us by coming down and walking among us. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year acceptable to the Lord. At long last the hero enters the story, He breaks through not as a king or a mighty general with a vast army, but as a small baby born in a manger to a poor family. He grows into a man, a man who not only proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, but who embodies that kingdom. Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God personified. He is the kingdom given flesh. We learn through the ministry of Jesus that the kingdom of God is not simply a concept, a doctrine, or a program that is free to our interpretation, but that it is, above all else, a person with a face and a name, and that name is Jesus of Nazareth, the visual image of an invisible God. Through the life and teachings of Jesus, we see that the truth of what we were created for and the truth of who we are in the eyes of the Father Two deeds are particularly characteristic of the earthly ministry of Jesus, healing and forgiving. We see that from these two deeds that in the kingdom of God there will no longer be sickness or suffering and that Jesus' mission is to transform people, free them from sin, and make them whole in body and spirit. Notice that those who have an encounter with Jesus do not respond with boredom or indifference, but rather profound questioning or deep hostility. There is no in-between. Looking at the ministry of Jesus, we would not call it a success by today's standards. But the results of his ministry are hidden within the mystery of his rejection, betrayal, crucifixion, and death. No one takes his life. Jesus is quite clear about that. Rather, he freely chooses to hand over his life as payment for our sins. God is a God of justice and mercy. The payment for our sins is death, as nothing that is impure can stand before God. And so Jesus, in his free choice to give of his life, bore the just punishment for our sins. Can you imagine what that kind of love and sacrifice must have been like? I can. It looks like a cross. It looks like Jesus, betrayed, beaten, bloodied, and bruised. 
nailed to a cross to save me from a far worse fate. Thankfully, this story does not end with death, but with life. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, and the whole story rests on the validity of this claim. If, in fact, Jesus did not rise from the dead, then what is the point? We must either accept that Jesus was God and therefore rose from the dead, or he was a crazy madman whose followers went through a lot of trouble to make him look like God. If you believe that Jesus did rise from the dead, you must decide what does that mean for your life. Because Jesus Christ, Son of God, came down from heaven and assumed our human nature. His life of perfect love and obedience to the Father, his death and resurrection on your behalf breaks the bondage of sin and death. And because of Jesus, the gates of heaven are opened, and he has given you a path for your own resurrection and a new life in him. The command to come and follow me was repeated frequently in the Gospels. This was not a command that Jesus haphazardly threw out to everyone, but rather to those who were seeking him. His command to come and follow me was made to those seeking discipleship, those who wanted to make a conscious decision to follow him. But this command does not come for free. He's quick to remind those seeking him that discipleship comes with a cost. You may have to give up selfish desires and the pursuit of worldly pleasures in order to follow. Discipleship is not passive. It's not a thing that simply happens to you. It is a conscious and intentional choice that must be made. It is a turning point in conversion, and it often requires all the resources of heart, mind, and strength that you possess. This means that you must first take a long and hard look inside of your heart and recognize your own shortcomings and failures. You must recognize that you are a sinful and limited creature who is in need of a Savior. This does not mean that you wallow in your sinfulness, but rather you surrender it to Jesus, who came down from heaven, suffered, died, and rose so that you might experience new life. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means that you may have to let go of the thing you're holding on to so tightly to receive the thing that you want the most. In my life, the thing I've held on to for far too long is fear. At the root of all of my decisions, my struggles, my sinfulness, lies a crippling fear. The fear that I am not enough the fear that I am too much, the fear that I will make a mistake, make someone angry, or that I will fail, the fear that no one will love me as I am, the fear that others will see through my masks, the fear of what everyone will think of me when they see who I really am. For a long time, I tried to be invisible. I was angry with God and didn't know how to process my emotions. Over time, I just began to bury them. Not feeling anything was easier than having to face my fears and the pain that comes with being human. What caused my fear is not important for our conversation today, but what brought me out of it is. I've never doubted the existence of God. I saw him, but I always saw him as a divine judge, high in the sky, removed from my life. I imagined him recording every move I made as he judged my actions, good or bad. When I graduated from high school, I served with Net Ministries for two years. Net Ministries is a nonprofit organization based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, that gathers young adults from across the country, puts them on teams, and sends them out to do retreats for middle and high school age students. My first year with them was not good. On Net, we were required to pray for an hour a day as community and asked to also commit to a half an hour of personal prayer. I hated community prayer and rarely took the time for personal prayer. In a ministry setting, serving others, I was miserable because I had cut myself off from the greatest sources of my strength, community and prayer. I was like a gas truck, 
trying to fill other people's tanks while mine was empty. In February of my first year, our supervisors came to visit us on the road, and they asked us to prayerfully consider doing a second year. I obliged, convinced that I was going home. I dutifully sat and prayed. During my prayer time, I felt the Lord calling me to a second year, but I resisted. Lord, I've already served one year for you. How can you ask me to be away from my family and my friends for two? Haven't I sacrificed enough? He replied, and I quote, I did three years of public ministry, which ended with my death on a cross. Do you really want to talk to me about sacrifice? And he had me. So I agreed, unhappily, to come back for a second year. I had the summer off, and something began to change in me. I realized that I missed the community, the prayer, and serving. I also realized that I had done a terrible job at serving him the first time around. But our God is an awesome God, and he offered me a second chance. When I returned the next year, I prayed for an open heart. He opened my heart to the people around me, a life of prayer not only in community but personally. And as my heart grew, my fear shrank. It was through my dependence on him that I was able to overcome the fear and live a life of discipleship that he was calling me to. It's been over 10 years ago, and some days I choose to return to my old ways of fear. But our God is a God of mercy and justice. And each day I can renew my commitment to him and to prayer. And each time he will walk with me and guide me as I answer his call to come and follow me. I tell you my story not to show you how amazing and holy I am, but rather to give you an example of how God has worked in my life. Looking back, I see that I have been given a lot of graces. Grace being a freely given, undeserved help from God to respond to his call to becoming a child of God partaker in divine eternal life. Please remember that God works in many and mysterious ways. I have never doubted the existence of God, and I firmly believe that this is a gift and a grace that I have been given, as I know many doubt him. I cannot tell you how, but I can clearly hear the voice of my creator echoing in my heart on occasion. This is a gift and a grace that I have been given. My story is just that, my story. If you doubt God or can't hear his voice, Know that he works in many ways to reveal himself, and how God reveals himself in my life will look very different than how he reveals himself in yours. But it always starts in the same place. As St. Paul tells us, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. So even the ability to follow Jesus is not something we do on our own, but rather as a gift and a grace from God. The first step to following Jesus is accepting his invitation. You must ask that he helps give you the grace to turn from your personal sin, to accept that he lived, suffered, died, and rose for you, and accept him into your life through regular practice of your faith. With the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be ready to follow Christ in the midst of his church for the sake of the world. I know this is a lot to take in. The first time I had a real encounter with these words, I found myself reeling and overwhelmed. Maybe that's how you feel right now. If so, that's okay. Maybe you don't feel anything at all. That's okay, too. The message of the love of God can be a difficult concept to grasp, and there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to a relationship with God. If you're interested in hearing more stories of encountering and finding faith, make sure to tune in next week to hear from our first guest. If you have any questions, need someone to journey with, or would be interested in sharing your story, please contact me at findingfaith123 at gmail.com. Thank you.